All right, good morning, Four Oaks. I'm Pastor Paul, the lead pastor here at Four Oaks Killarne. I've got to be honest, I noticed that some of you regular first service attenders have sort of slinked in here to second service. Idolaters. We know exactly what was going on last night. Anyway, no, we're glad you're here regardless of which service that you've come to. Now, actually, I want to start this morning first by inviting you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12. And as you do so, I do want to ask you a question. It's not meant to be tongue-in-cheek or, or cute. It's, it's a serious question, and I'm going to ask it a couple of different ways. And so here goes. First of all, simply this. Whose approval in this world do you crave more than anyone else's? Here, here's a different way to think about it. Whose affirmation do you absolutely believe that you need? To quote from Mr. Darcy in Pride and Prejudice, whose good opinion once lost would crush you? You knew I had to get him into the whole thing, right? Is it your spouse, a best friend, a mentor? Maybe it's, a, it's your parents, a teacher, best friend? Well, if you were an Israelite living 2,000 years ago, your answer to that question would actually be pretty easy. The, per, the people or the persons or the group that you needed the approval from the most were, of course, the religious leaders, the Pharisees. It's, it's kind of hard for us to grasp, but this is a group of men who really were gatekeepers of everything that happened in the course of life. They weren't just priests sort of segmented off to the Sabbath or the Lord's Day. They controlled every facet of your life, religiously, personally, civilly. They, they had their hands into everything. Let's suffice it to say, you did not want to get sideways with a Pharisee. They, they could make your life very complicated, very miserable. And it's the Pharisees who have rendered a verdict over this upstart preacher and so-called prophet going around doing all sorts of miraculous and supernatural and crazy things. Of course, I'm talking about Jesus. They, they've rendered their verdict. And it's really the most damaging, injurious verdict that a, that a leader of Israel could, could render about someone. They say that Jesus is an imposter. He's a blasphemer. He's a, he's a liar. He's a threat. And as we learned last week, they are now from henceforward on a one-way mission, not just to privately besmirch Jesus, but to publicly destroy him, to kill him. And in fact, this is where the rest of the Gospel of Matthew takes us. But before Matthew jumps into this next stage of the drama, so to speak, it's almost like he hits pause to say, and now a word from the person's whose verdict matters the most, and that's God. Let, but, but before we continue on in this story, Matthew seems to be saying, let's see what God has to say about Jesus, because obviously his opinion, whom the religious leaders claim to speak on behalf of, is most important. And we're going to find that it's as if God is saying, listen, guys, you, you've rendered your verdict about my son, but now I'm going to give you my verdict about my son. 
And here's why this is important. This is why this is mission critical for us here this morning. You see, we may not think about it this way, but each and every one of us has to come to our own verdict about Jesus. Can we trust him? Can we entrust our life to him? And I don't just mean on a theological, affirmational sort of level by words alone, but can we actually trust him with the fine china of our life? Can we actually trust and walk and rest, not just once, but daily, weekly, monthly, yearly for our whole lives? There's no more important question for you to ask yourself, no more important decision to to render your verdict than that one. And we're going to be in Matthew chapter 12 this morning uh, from verses 14 to 21. And so I'm going to invite you to stand as we read God's word together. We ended last week at verse 14, and we're going to pick back up right there because it kind of gives us a running start into today's text. So hear the word of the Lord. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. Let's pray. Lord, we're asking you to do something we know as as mere human beings we are powerless to do, and that's to, to open the eyes of our heart, that we might see you for who you truly are, your son for who he truly is. Lord, this happens through the operation of your spirit as we open your word. Now, Lord, would you, would you do that? Would you be kind? Would you be gracious? Would you visit us this morning? Lord, give us clarity of thought. Let us see you for who you truly are. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. You may take your seats. Before we get into the meat of this text, one of the most obvious sorts of questions that jumps out to us as we're, as we're reading this is, is, Pastor Paul, why is Jesus running here? Why is he pulling away? It seems that Jesus is always doing amazing things but telling people not to say anything about him. Not to tell anyone. It's, 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 it's bewildering that he's... That he's he seems so catty. What, what, what is this about? And as we're going to see, as we're, we work our way through Matthew's gospel, we're going to come to understand quite clearly it's not because Jesus is afraid or even that Jesus fears dying or suffering or confrontation. No, no, no. We're going to get to Matthew 23 and the woes upon the Pharisees Jesus delivers will make you blush, right? No, we understand that Jesus is on a one-way mission 
to the cross. That's his whole purpose. Rather, Matthew draws us to something interesting here in the text. Look at, look at verse 17. Matthew says that as Jesus withdrew from there, okay, verse 17, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. In other words, there is something very specific about this withdrawal that communicates something vital about who Jesus is. You see, if you remember the title of this sermon, which if you haven't, it's conveniently located right there. Okay, that's the title of our whole series of the Gospel of Matthew, King and Kingdom. Matthew has been intent on showing us that Jesus, in fact, is the king. He is the chosen Messiah. He's from the line of David. He's the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. He's, he's got the pedigree. He's, he's got the, the, the right teaching and the right deeds and the right words and the approval of God. But the question really then becomes, okay, Pastor Paul, I get that. But what kind of king are we talking about here? Is this a conquering king, a political king, a king who's wiping out enemies, fixing all of our horizontal and physical problems? Or is he actually a suffering king who came to conquer sin, to save people, to renew their hearts? And let me just say, that is precisely the point that so many stumble upon Jesus. When we think about those who profess Christ and at some point walk away, fall away, we might be able to, to, to point to certain theological nuances and different points of doctrine and, and all that's relevant. But if you want to get right down to brass tacks, so often falling away comes down to some sort of deep disappointment with God. God, I thought that you would fill in the blank. I thought you would fix my marriage or save my kids or heal my diseases or whatever the, the, whatever the situation is for yourself, right? I thought you were going to be the conquering king in my life. But when we come to God's word and find that, no, no, before he's the conquering king, he has to be the suffering king. This, this is a hard thing. Because Jesus says no, no servant is greater than his, than his master. And who you determine Jesus is, and when I say determine, I don't mean that you shape Jesus into whoever you want him to be. He is who he is. But who you perceive him to be, what verdict you render about who he is, is going to determine how he functions in relationship to you. And that's going to be where we're going this morning. And so there's going to be two points that we look at this evaluation of who Jesus is that Matthew gives us. And, it, and we're going to, it's very simple. Number one, who Jesus is to you, that's our first point. And secondly, who you are to him. And those things are vitally connected. All right, who Jesus is to you. Let's look back at the text, Matthew 12. As Matthew lays out his counter-response to the Pharisees about who Jesus is, I want you to note just something about Matthew's method, okay, or Matthew's apologetic in trying to answer this question of who is Jesus really. Now, in our current um, evangelical context, broadly speaking, 
we hear a lot of talk, a lot of Jesus talk, and it goes sometimes like this. If we want to know how to live life, we got to live the, the Jesus way. If we want to know what to value, we need to value what Jesus values. We need to be Jesus people. And, and, and as far as it goes, on one hand, we want to say, duh, of course, right? But on another hand, oftentimes that's a move, a, a, a kind of a, a subtle, sneaky move, that what it's really seeking to do is to pit Jesus against other portions of God's word in the scripture that we don't like, particularly the Old Testament. Oh, no, 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 Pastor Paul, that, that's, that's kind of Old Testament stuff. That's, that's the Apostle Paul. That, he's a mean apostle. Jesus is the nice guy. You know, Paul's drawing lines, but Jesus is drawing circles. You know, that sort of thing, right? Well, where does Matthew go in attempting to answer this question about who Jesus really is? He does not go in his subjective feelings. He does not go to his imagination about who he wishes Jesus was. He doesn't go to philosophy to explain who he thinks Jesus should be, right? He tells us who Jesus is, please hear this, based upon the Word of God. Matthew goes to, of all places, where? The Old Testament. Isaiah 42, in fact, that's what this whole quotation in verses 18 through 21, is drawn from. And this is just a reminder for us before we get into the, to the meat of this. If we have constructed a vision of Jesus that happens to comport perfectly with the values and sensibilities of our age, oh, Pastor Paul, you know, Jesus didn't say anything about, about marriage or about gender or about sexuality or any of those sorts of things. If, if that's our verdict then we probably haven't really understood the scope of Scripture. We've constructed an idol for ourselves, And so this method that Matthew employs must be our method. So let's, let's, look, let's dig into verse 18. The first thing God says about Jesus is that he is my chosen servant. Now, very interesting. We just had a welcome to the family class, and it was maybe the largest class we've ever had. It was tons of people. And, and this group came with the questions, let me just tell you. They brought the thunder. And I usually kind of write up on the board, what are the questions you came in here with today? And there'll be a couple. The whole board was filled, right? And what do you think half of them were about? Election, free will, predestination, what does it mean to be chosen? That was, and, and of course, we definitely navigated that in three minutes and answered everyone's question to their satisfaction. Now, that's a common question we have. People always want to talk about election, but before God's people were elected, if we can use those terms, what does this tell us? Jesus was elected, Jesus was chosen. See, we don't think about it that way much, do we? Before the foundation of the world, Jesus was chosen in consultation with the Godhead altogether. It's a great mystery. Jesus was chosen to be the suffering servant who would die for his people. 
And any relationship that we have as God's chosen people is tied to the fact that Jesus is God's chosen servant. If you don't believe me, listen to Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And so we have to ask, when did this blessing happen? Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. Now that word, beloved, I want you to see the connection to Isaiah 42. It's almost as if Paul read the Old Testament. I know it's amazing, right? Look, 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 look back at verse 18. Behold my servant, whom I have chosen, here it is, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. There are two times in the New Testament that God speaks audibly over his son for, for everyone to hear. Two times. The first time, we've, we've already seen it, it's at his baptism. Behold my son with whom I am well pleased. Now when we get to the transfiguration, which is the second time, we'll do that in about eight years or something like that, right? Eight months. Transfiguration same thing. Behold my son with whom I am well pleased. And now here's the question, and it, it's, on one hand, it's, it, it's impossible to answer this fully, of course, but we have to ask, why? Why is God well pleased with his sons? And of course, on one hand, the answers are infinite, right? We're going to spend eternity figuring this out. Because Jesus, the Father, Holy Spirit, are in this eternal, unchanging relationship, right? Of course they're pleased with each other. Of course there's everlasting and eternal joy. That's true. But, I'll, but there is a specific reason in this text, I believe, that God says he is pleased with his son. And they both have to do with the fact that Jesus is God's suffering servant, so what is it that is, that is happening at Jesus' baptism as God is speaking this voice over his son, behold my son with whom I am well pleased? What, what's, what's happening? What does John the Baptist tell us? Behold the Lamb of God who what? Takes away the sin of the world. What's happening on the trans, Mount of Transfiguration? Well, the disciples are getting a taste of the good life, the eternal life, the glorification of the Son. And they're like, Jesus, don't go off this mountain. Just build some stuff that we can be in charge of, and let's all hang out here together. And what does Jesus say? i got to go off this mountain because my, my purpose right now is not to build an earthly kingdom. It's to die. It's, 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 to, it's to lay my life down for the sins of the world. And traditions, uh, Christians have traditionally, theologians have called this the substitution, right? Or substitutionary atonement, or if you want to get real technical, penal substitutionary atonement. And it's simply, it's just a fancy way of saying that Jesus died in our place as a substitute, as a sacrifice for our sins. 
and that Jesus, as we sang about in Pastor Joe's remark this morning, received the divine wrath of the Father that was intended for us, that we deserved, and he placed it on his Son instead. It's what Luther called the great exchange, that, that he received our sin, we received his righteousness. But we need to know that, that, that some on the progressive end of the spectrum will say, well, well, come on, that sounds really primitive. That sounds really base. That sounds, that sounds gosh awful. I mean, goodness, what, how, can, how can that idea be, be compatible with God's love? How, how could a father pour his wrath out on his own son? That's wicked, that's abusive, that's divine child abuse. We hear all sorts of things. Yet, and this is why it's important not to pit Jesus against the rest of the Bible, what we see in Galatians 3, for example, so Paul makes it very clear that Jesus became a curse on our behalf. God looked out over his son and he damned his son in our place. And so it does not do, we miss the heart of the gospel if we say, you know, God is well pleased with Jesus in spite of Jesus being killed like this. You know, that was unjust and it was just a, a symbol, it was just an example for us. Guys, God is not well pleased with Jesus in spite of, his, in spite of him dying an undeserved death. God is pleased with Jesus because he died an undeserved death. And in dying, he absorbs the wrath of God and propitiates, diffuses, turns away our sin. And you know who else speaks about it this way? Isaiah. Just a few short chapters down, we've, we've, we've read, we read this at Christmas, we read this at Easter and Good Friday, and as we do that again this year, I want, I want you to think about it in a fresh way. Listen to what Isaiah says. Sure, and he's speaking about the suffering servant, the same person he's speaking about in this text, Isaiah 42. Here's what he says. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken. Well, listen, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Jesus said, God says, that's the servant that I'm very well pleased with. We'll back at the text, Matthew 12. Isaiah goes on, I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. Again, this is not about Jesus being a coward. This is not about Jesus being a people pleaser. This is not about Jesus being afraid of confrontation. Again, what this is showing us is the kind of suffering servant and Savior Jesus is. He's not there to crush his opponents. He's not there to establish at that time his political kingdom. He's not there to raise up opposition from the masses. He's not there to riot in the streets. He's not there to put up a ruckus. That's what we say in East Tennessee, ruckus. It's like, I don't have time for you Pharisees. 
I've got people to save and to heal. And he goes, and what does it say? They come to him and he heals them all. Isaiah 53, 7 goes on to say this. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. This is what I think it's getting at. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that before it shears its silence. So he opened not his mouth. Now, theologians don't like it when pastors ask questions like this, uh, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, humanly speaking, or, or, or in his humanity, what gave Jesus such resolve and confidence as he headed to the cross? And I think that's a very valid question to ask because we know in his humanity, Jesus wrestled in the garden, and what did he say? Father, if it is your will, take this cup from me, but not my will, but your will. What, what gave him such great confidence to not retort, to not defend, to not call upon the legion of angels as he told Peter he could, but to stay on mission, to stay on a mission that would ultimately take him to the cross? And I think in 100%, Jesus, without a shadow of a doubt, knew who he was, knew who he was in relationship to the, to the Father. He knew what he was called to do. He came to do the will of the one who sent him, to seek and save that which is lost. Before, guys, before we leave this point, and again, what we're really camping out on here is, who does God say his son is? And that's the portrait we're being given but before we leave that point, let me just ask you just quickly, just as a point of application, what brave thing or courageous thing or hard thing or difficult thing is God calling you to do this season and you simply don't know if you have the grace to do it? What is the thing that you are just most fearful of? And it might relate to the, what we asked at the very beginning of, the, of, this, of this sermon. Something that's going to cause someone to be upset. Or who you were taking a great risk of them rendering a different sort of judgment or approval or disapproval of you. Maybe it's a hard conversation. Maybe it's a, a place that God is calling you to take a stand. Maybe it's some principled thing that's going to cost you dearly where 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 do we get the grace and the resolve to do that in jesus see jesus knew who he was he knew his identity that the father would never leave him or forsake him and as you get connected with that and knowing that when Jesus was chosen before the foundation of the world to die, that you, and this will bake your noodle, were united with him even then. That's who you are. And knowing who Jesus is unlocks a treasure trove of incredible promises for you. And that brings us to our second and last point. We're asking who Jesus is to you, and how you answer that determines who you are to him. Now, this next little section is going to sound encyclopedic, okay? 
or do we say Wikipedic, whatever the word is, but, but I want to just talk about reeds and wicks just for a second, which I know is why you're here this morning. And this obviously is one of the most well-known passages in all the Bible. We hear it every Advent season, we hear it at Easter, but I think it's one of those passages, quite honestly, we're ashamed to admit it. That, that's called transference. Okay, we're ashamed to admit it. We haven't really thought about what it means and not really quite sure what it's getting at. And that's totally true for me, even post-seminary, post-pastorate, all those, all those sorts of things, because they are kind of images that are pretty obscure to us. But, but Isaiah wants to talk about reeds and wicks because he wants to compare us to them, okay? Because if we, because the, the, follow the logic here, if we understand who Jesus is, then when we come to grips with who we are, we won't lose all hope. You see, you can come to grips with who you are this morning and lose all hope if you don't know who you are to Jesus. So, so what is a read? And I copy and paste it from the interwebs just to make sure we got it right, okay? Here it is. A read is a tall, slender, leaved plant of the grass family with a hollow jointed stalk that grows in the water or on marshy ground. Now we have it here in the southeast. They have it aplenty, right, in the Mediterranean world. They're growing in marshy places. But what's interesting about the reed is that it can be used for a variety of uses and was at that time. People made little flutes with it. You could make writing utensils. You could make eating utensils. But after a while, after you use that reed for a while, what would happen to it? It would be, become weak or frayed or soggy, kind of like those paper straws that are an abomination to all of mankind. Can we all agree with this? <laughs> and what do you do with that straw? Do you put a little duct tape around it? No, no, no. You, you yearn for the days of plastic, and then you go get another one, right? You throw it away. You, you, that, that's what they're for, right? That's what a reed is for. It fulfills its purpose, and then you toss it. Because the same thing with a wick, of course. Again, I quote, what is a wick? It's a cord or band of loosely twisted or woven fibers, as in a candle, cigarette lighter, let the hearer hear, that supplies fuel to a flame, and this is my favorite part, by capillary action. I love that, okay? So they make, they, it, wicks were made of flax, of seed, again, in great abundance. You put that wick in the oil. You don't light the oil directly unless you want like a big explosion. You light that wick. It draws up somehow by magic uh, the oil into the wick, and it burns until it becomes a little nub. Now, don't do what I did, okay? I, Joe Godfrey loves to put candles going in my office and I secretly like it. But anyway, when it, when it burns down to the nub, right, and I'm ready to, like, blow it out, don't blow it really hard. Or it'll get wax all over the furniture in your office. I'm just, I'm just saying, okay? But wick is done. It's done. And so in the ancient times, it's like, why bother with that wick? Get rid of it. It's time to get another. So if I could pick one word to describe a reed, one word to describe a wick, what would they be? Or, or two words? Yeah. A, a reed is weak. A reed is fragile. A wick is low. It is powerless. It is impotent. 
what is, what's Isaiah telling us? That's, that's who we are. That's who we are. We're weak and fragile. We're low and powerless. And here's the thing. We can pretend otherwise, but in the depths of our heart, we know it's true. We're just hoping somebody doesn't figure it out before everybody else does. You see, if we're strong and autonomous and independent and self-sufficient, first of all, congratulations, but you're not a guy or a lady who's going to need Jesus. Jesus did not come to save those kinds of people. Why? Because they don't think they need saving. However, and here is the beauty of, and the paradox of the gospel, who is it that is saved? Those who know they can't save themselves. The ones who know they're weak and fragile and low and powerless. And when you come to see Jesus for who he really is, and then when you are exposed to the depths of who you really are, you won't despair. Because here it talks about a precious relationship that Jesus as the suffering servant has with his reeds and his wicks. He says, I'll, I'll not snuff you out. I will not throw you away. Oh, but, but Pastor Paul, you don't know what I've done. You don't know where I've been. You don't know who I really am. And you know what I want to say to that instead of saying, oh, it's okay. Just say, you're exactly right. And you don't know about me either. But there's one person who does. His name is Jesus. And when he is our all in all, when he is our suffering servant, if you are resting and trusting in him, Jesus says, I don't throw anybody away. I don't snuff anybody out no matter how many times or how unfaithful or how despairing they think their choices are place that their choices have put them in. Here, here's a great quote. It's a new book by Sam Albury and Ray Ortland. This is talking about the hospitality of Jesus. And this is, it's a little longer, just, just stick with it. I think it's, it will be meaningful to you. This is to you, Christian. Whatever darkness inside of you troubles your heart, whatever capacities for wickedness and stupidity lurk within, whatever still haunts you from your past, however fearful you are that you will never change, know this, your sin does not intimidate Jesus. What is right in him far outweighs what is wrong in you. There is more grace in him than guilt in you. He is better at saving than you are at sinning. That'll preach, right? It is at the point where all of us feel the most disgusted with ourselves, the most hopeless and most worthy of judgment. It is in our worst defilement that we find Jesus the most tender and gracious towards us. This is Christ's welcome. He moves towards the needy, the outcast, the messed up, the sinful. He doesn't recoil in disgust. He doesn't keep his distance. He makes the first move. He approaches. He is moved. He reaches out. He heals and restores. This is what it means for Christ to welcome us. This is what we're to offer one another. Because you're all those things to Christ. 
if only Christ is the suffering servant for you who has laid his life down and now you've entrusted your life to him, resting in him in him, in him alone. It comes with a promise and say this will be done. Look back at the text. Until he brings justice to victory and in his name the Gentiles will hope. And you may say, Pastor Paul, that, that sounds ethereal and out there. But where I am in my life right now, it doesn't feel like victory and it doesn't feel like justice. You might be saying, Pastor Paul, sometimes I have to ask God, I cry out to God, God, why are you so severe on your servants? I'm just trying to walk faithfully here. And that severity might strike us in our bodies or in our relationships or in our hearts or in our dreams. Yet all those things Jesus carried with him as the suffering servant. He was broken and crushed for something far greater than to just fix the horizontal problems in your life for the next 50 years. He died to transform you. He died to save you. He died to wipe away all of your sin. That is who Jesus is to you as you come to know him as the Savior. I'm going to end with this text from the Apostle Paul. Paul got this. Oh, did he ever. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. So, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Guys, it's true, we are a bunch of of wicks and reeds, but we are saved wicks and reeds, forgiven wicks and reeds, beloved wicks and reeds, redeemed wicks and reeds. All of these things are true of us, and if you haven't trusted in Christ, can be true for you. If only you come to him. What verdict do you render upon Jesus today? There's no more important question that anyone could ever ask. Let's pray.